0: the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil show. One of my guesses here, Mets is not here, but that's you know, it's we're on Paul's time. We're all on Paul's clock. Correct, Patrick.
1: Well, that's uh, that's how it is.
0: <laughs> it's did he stop? Was it an emergency pasty situation that he needed a pasty immediately? Is that where we're at with him? I'm going to go with he needed an extra cigarette. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but all right. Enjoy that heater on us there, there, Paul. We'll see. He'll get in here before too long. But I do have uh, his partner in his latest book here. Blood in the Tracks is an uh, kind of a fascinating story here. The Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchick uh, Shef, are here uh, he's here at least. Paul is going to be here in just a moment to talk about this uh, book. Rick Chef uh thank you very much. I appreciate the time today.
2: Ah, oh, it's great being here, Matt. Thank you.
0: No, thank you for uh, thank you for the, taking the time because um, this is a, a fascinating story. And what what's interesting about it is that the the, the we're talking about one of the iconic albums of all time. And I guess we'll start, start with there I mean, Blood in the Tracks Talk about just the significance of Dylan's album I believe this was released in 75 I have recorded yes. in 74, correct?
2: Exactly, recorded in uh, the fall of 74 Released in early 75 The significance of it to Dylan at the time was This was his his statement about I'm back, I'm interested in being relevant again I want to be part of the conversation The way I was back in the mid-60s um, he had a run of albums in the 60s that are um, just staggeringly great. Yeah. And, and he knew it, and he knew he wasn't doing work at that level anymore. And for a while, he didn't care. He sort of checked out of the scene in the late 60s, um, and then when he came back, it was sort of putting one toe in the water with uh, Nashville Skyline, which was completely unlike anything he'd ever done before, and that was intentional. He was essentially trying to say to his audience, don 't look for me anymore i 'm not going to be your guy i 'm not going to be the leader of the of the generation i 'm not interested in that mm-hmm. position. but a couple of years go by, and a few things were happening in his life his uh, His marriage was fraying uh, his kids were older he started uh, kind of missing being out on the road again missing hear him, hearing himself on the radio again. So he switched labels. He went to uh, Asylum for two albums, um, both of which sold well, but didn't stay in the charts all that long and didn't get a hit single. So the songs that he wrote after that for Blood on the Tracks were very personal for him, uh, much more personal than the kind of material he'd been doing in the past. Uh, Reflecting his personal life, uh, um, he denied that it was a divorce album, but, uh, you know, if you... If you put the uh, uh, the clues together, it's, it's pretty obvious that he was having some personal upheaval. Uh, but it was also an attempt um, to really become relevant again, uh, mm-hmm. to make an album that would sell a lot, that would get on the radio, that would give him a hit. And it, it did. It really brought Dylan back uh, into the center of the musical mainstream, and he's kind of – been there ever since well
0: and it's it, what's fascinating about that journey i mean it's a journey a lot of musicians a lot of great musicians have gone to too where they 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 what the times change and you get into the late 60s and the 70s and music kind of changed, and these things and you know it, it's kind of do i want to be that significant person i was listening to an interview with paul mccartney about that It's like i don't really want to be this you know what it became and you know it, but then comes that point where they kind of embrace it. And do you feel as if when it in Blood of the Tracks that it was a case where going through the personal stuff, he realized, I'm gonna go back to my warm bed, put my blankets on me where I'm comfortable and I'm safe and I'm gonna go do this and I'm gonna do the, the best dang version of that I can possibly do.
2: Oh, I do think that there was a lot of that. Um, I also think that uh, there are forces when you are that popular and that creative that, that keep drawing you back in that direction. Uh, it didn't come out of nowhere that Bob Dylan was writing those unbelievably great songs uh, back in the mid-60s. Uh, you know, that talent, uh, he felt, w- was had started to escape him. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do that again. But he, he uh, took some painting classes in, in New York uh, in uh, the spring of 1974 with an art instructor who – gave him another way of looking at uh things that were going on around him um and he, some of the songs reflect that because he he changes uh he changes tenses he changes perspectives uh sometimes he's in the first person sometimes he's in the third person in the same song and that was Dylan's way of sort of doing a 360 around every subject that he was working with now it didn't get him to back to writing the kinds of songs that he was on uh, say Highway sixty one revisited, but it really sharpened his focus and um, and I think it was the talent and the the songwriting uh, urge that he had ever since he was uh, uh, you know a teenager that really drew him back. Yeah, it was it was comfortable, but it was almost necessary for him.
0: The album, the recording of the album, it's initially going to be recorded in New York, correct?
2: It was recorded in New York, okay. yes,
0: and. So okay, so you know he's putting this album together, and then something's not working. Correct that—that's basically that he's realizing that. What would you know? Does he does he elaborate more about what wasn't working at that point when he was trying to get those tracks down?
2: No, he has really not talked much at all about those sessions. Um, it, it was at uh, Phil Ramone's New York studio, and in fact, it was the same studio that Dylan recorded his first six albums uh, uh, with Columbia, and then mm-hmm. Ramone bought it. Uh, Ramon has since uh, written his biography. Um, actually, Phil died uh, back in the uh, mid-2000 uh, teens, I think it was. Mm-hmm, yeah. And also Glenn Berger, the engineer on the session, has also written a book about it. Uh, Dylan himself has not been quoted about what went wrong with the sessions, but uh, you know, when you read what, uh, what Berger and Ramon had to say, it was pretty clear that there just wasn't a level of communication between Dylan and the, and the studio musicians. That, that led to um, the, the kind of product that he was looking for.
0: That is something that I've, I've heard as well from other musicians that are experienced that go into it. And don't get me wrong, studio musicians are brilliant. I mean, they, they really are talented people. I've read some of the Sun uh, Records uh, studio uh, sessions and the, and the people that were coming in there and how good they were. Right. But the reality is when you have someone of D- uh, Dylan's magnitude, he's clearly got a specific vision. And, you know, sometimes I think that that gets hard to convey, especially with, you know, seasoned pro musicians who are, okay, what do you want me to do again? You know, and and, and it, kind of, it can get missed. And I think it gets frustrating after, say, the 10th or 12th take, and it's just not there. And, he, and there's something very specific he's looking for, and he just can't vocalize it per se.
2: Yeah, and Dylan is not – uh, again, I'm speaking about Bob Dylan as though I know him personally. I don't – we all think that we have a uh, an idea of what kind of a guy he is, but he's, he's very private, mm-hmm. um, hasn't uh, elaborated on anything that he has <laughs> not chosen to elaborate on. Let's put it that way, and this is one of them. But that also makes him um, somebody that can be hard to work with in the studio as the uh, New York Session musicians all reported afterwards they 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 were in awe of him but they weren't um I wouldn't say they were intimidated you know they were mm-hmm. used to working with other great artists yeah. but they just thought this was going to be a great opportunity to play with a guy that they've always admired and from uh Dylan's point of view uh, he he didn't really help them um, he he was playing all of the songs uh, in an open tuning that uh, the other musicians really weren't that familiar with, which meant that the chord positions on his hand really weren't going to tell them anything because they didn't know what chord it was in those positions. Uh, and even more to the point, Dylan wasn't even facing them or telling them anything about what chords he was playing he just wanted them to jump in when they felt like they knew the song mm-hmm. rather than having it taught to them he he wanted it to be more spontaneous organic it, 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 that's that's exactly right mm-hmm. and unfortunately um the musicians just grew frustrated thinking that uh, um they weren't giving him what what he wanted and uh, and Dylan was not very responsive. They went to Phil Ramon and they said can't you can't you have him help us a little bit mm-hmm. uh at least give us a chord chart or something like that because you know this is this is going to be us on tape, and we want mm-hmm. to sound good. We want to do yeah. a good job for him um but Ramon wouldn't do that. Uh, his attitude was, um, I'm not really producing this. I, I, this is my studio, but Bob wants to use it. And if Bob says he's not going to talk to the musicians, I'm not going to force him to talk to the musicians.
0: And it's also Bob Dylan. It you know, I mean, it's OK. Uh, I know. I know. I don't feel. And I, I, it's not a scold. It's more kind of I don't even know if it's constructive criticism. It's more of a request, really. And, you know, it's you, you, but you still are going to be apprehensive about saying, OK, I mean, this guy He's done laps around, you know, most of the people that come into the studio. How am I supposed to go ahead and say something like that?
2: That's right. Um, I think Glenn Berger, the engineer, was uh, probably the most descriptive of, of what went on. He said. Uh, um, one by one, the musicians just started dropping out because they had mm-hmm. nothing that they could contribute, and it ended up being just Dylan and the bass player, Tony Brown, on mm-hmm. on most of the tracks that came out of that session in New York.
0: So yeah. at what point did Dylan say, okay, maybe I need to change a venue here?
2: Well, it wasn't until he got back to Minnesota in uh, December, um, he had made a few phone calls to Ramon um, expressing some doubts about it and and Phil loved the album as it was recorded and he said, no, this is going to be great, Bob. You don't need to tinker with it. Um, but he started sensing... Uh, and, and he'd always been afraid of of albums that were recorded and then not released fairly quickly because he said artists always start to have second thoughts. Yeah. And, and he sensed that Dylan was having second thoughts. But it was his brother, David, who convinced him that he really didn't have a hit album here. He had something that the critics were going to like, something that would probably uh, you know get a lot of uh, FM airplay, but there, were, there was no hit single mm-hmm. from what David Zimmerman was hearing. So he said, uh, um, you know, I I, I work with a lot of musicians in the Twin Cities studio music music scene, uh, particularly at Sound 80, which was the best studio uh, in the Twin Cities and one of the best in the country. So he said, how about if I round up uh, half a dozen musicians and go in and recut one of the songs and see if you think it's uh, an improvement and uh, we'll take it from there, and Dylan agreed to do that.
0: Was it an immediate notification that, yep, this is much better? When he started kind of working with these local musicians.
2: Yes. Um, the very first song that they recut was um, Idiot Wind. And when you hear the uh, New York version, which is available now in this six-CD box set, um, it's the lyrics are still somewhat accusatory but it doesn't have the the bite or the or really the venom that uh, some of dylan's earlier classics had i mm-hmm. think particularly of positively Four street you know you got a lot of nerve to say you're my friend and there's lines like that in idiot wind that don't come across quite as um uh as aggressive let's say on the new york version as they do once he had the bigger band in the twin cities and the other thing is he was, uh, he was very cooperative with the musicians right away, and mm-hmm. we make the case in the book that it's the fact that they were from Minnesota, and there was sort of this, uh, this shared DNA that mm-hmm. they all had that just made those sessions fall together much more compatibly.
0: Well, it is, it, that's an interesting point, because he'd been in New York for a long time at mm-hmm. that point, right? but there is that familiarity of home. I mean, Prince was notorious for it. You know, he just you know he, he could go record anywhere he wanted to, and he could. Oh, Paul Metz is here. Wow. They, you
2: know, <laughs> okay, folks. See you later. <laughs> no, you're,
0: you don't turn his mic on yet. Right. But okay, so there is that fascinating element of it because it's not like he had he was first time in New York. It wasn't like the first time he was there. And so, you know, he had this, but it, that kind of that DNA comes in there. Talk a little bit about the musicians that were rounded up at this point. I mean, and, and Paul, by the we're talking about now him in Minneapolis re-recording some of these cuts. Talk about this a little bit in regards to the musicians that he found, because clearly he found musicians that he was able to relate to on a much better level.
2: Yeah, and Paul has known all of these guys a lot longer than I have. So this would be a perfect place for yeah, him. Yeah, um,
1: yeah. Pardon me for being late. You're OK. It's I, all right. I'm waiting for, for that the train doc. down from Duluth <laughs> is what I did. But uh, uh, yeah, this, I don't know if you got back to the Million Dollar Bash.
2: No, I haven't talked about Not that yet.
1: OK. The, kind of where this started, man. In 2001, uh, I put together a tribute to Bob Dylan's 60th birthday at First Avenue. Forty bands on two stages – the main stage and 7th uh, Street Entry. And I called Kevin Odegaard, who played guitar on, uh, ended up playing guitar on Tangled Up in Blue in 74, to see what would be the the uh, chance of getting the, the, the band back together. So uh, he got on the phone. We got five out of the six guys, everybody except Bill Berg, the drummer. And they came and played together for the first time, and in several cases, first time since they'd seen each other since nineteen seventy four And uh, it was just an incredible night. If you dressed as a Dylan lyric or song, you got in for free, seventy five people did twelve hundred people sold out show, and uh, it was really a phenomenal evening. Odegaard credits me a little bit with kickstarting. Their campaign to finally get their uh, credit for playing on that record, because I'm sure Rick probably told you that uh, the covers were printed, and so they never were uh, credited for well, playing and, on that record.
0: And we can let's let we talk about this. They came and recorded. How many of the songs did they record in Minneapolis with the Minneapolis crew? Five, five of them. They had this. Now this is where this gets really weird because I know musicians and I know a lot of this. Those musicians that were on those tracks on on this album were not listed on the official album, correct? That's correct. All right.
2: Not only that, but uh, of the musicians who are listed on the album, uh, I think only two of them even actually played on the official release. Wow. Several of the other musicians who are listed were in... Eric Weisberg's band, who he rounded up for those New York sessions, and those were the guys who sort of ended up peeling off because their parts just weren't working, and yet they still got credited on the on the jacket for having played on it.
0: Was it Ramon? Was it was, was it, is that was that driven by them, or was that just where did that come from?
2: Well, the, the uh, jackets were printed right after the New York sessions.
0: Okay, so just laziness,
2: <laughs> right? Uh, well, pretty much, and also a, a lack of time because the re-recorded. Um, songs the five songs that were substituted at the last minute really were last minute it was three weeks after that minneapolis session that the album came out mm-hmm. so there was there was no time to do anything different with the first run of the albums well
0: and the question then is after the first run why didn't they rectify that problem with the second run because obviously this is an album that's sold a lot of cuts, and sure you you run a back then where they'd probably do a million prints on the first one and you expecting it and then but mm-hmm. they never corrected this
1: that is uh that is the grand question Part of the thrust of uh, our book, Blood in the Tracks, uh, the musician, Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, is to kind of blow away the idea. A lot of people – uh, thought that these were just pickup garage band musicians, and uh, what we posit very heavily in the book, these were some of the the best musicians in Minneapolis. And when I say as a forty year veteran of the Minneapolis music scene, if you're the best in Minneapolis, you're as good as anywhere in the country. And um, so, uh, the musicians uh, that uh, performed on there were were. David Zimmerman and Kevin Odegaard and Rick does a great job of explaining that, how those musicians got chosen.
2: Yeah, well, let's let's name them. We've already mentioned Bill Berg, the drummer, uh, and Billy Peterson, the bass player. Uh, They were the house rhythm section for Sound 80. They worked with... uh, a wide variety of artists who would come in there to uh, to make albums or singles, and they also did jingles. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, they could play any style of music. They knew each other. Just but that's the great the
0: part way. about studio musicians, and I, exactly. I love when I re- read about blues sessions, because it's like because then they kind of get into that, and they love this. But they are so malleable that you can use them for a, a TV jingle or a radio jingle, but then they can come in and sit down with a Dylan and pull out and, and be – a classic artist on a classic album at any given drop of a hat.
1: And and what's interesting is that is very true in Billy Peterson and Bill Berg's case. Odegaard had done uh, a few records himself and had performed for a long time. Chris Webber had owned the Podium Guitar Store, wasn't really playing at the time, although he played uh, quite a bit in uh, the 60s and in the early 70s. In fact, had a duo with musician-actor my good buddy Chris Mulkey. But what's really uh, fun about our book and the story, it was the first time 21-year-old Peter Ostrusko had ever been in a recording studio. Really, And it just happened to be with Bob Dylan. Well, you're going downhill from after. <laughs> <laughs> well, he played with me in, in 84, so Matt, let's not go that far. <laughs> well,
0: it is pretty much peaking. I mean, My first radio job, I was on Armed Forces Radio Network in Nuremberg, Germany. My audience was th- 35 million people because we broadcast into the old East Germany. I'm, I'm, That's downhill from there, man. That's where I peaked. Number one right there. Sir the sure Fantastic. Lundabar. I'll tell you what. Let's take a break. Well, we'll take an extended break here. Come on back. Uh, we'll talk more about the book and then we, we, we'll talk about the stuff we always talk about, Paul. All right. All right. Uh, Paul Metza and uh, Rick Shefchick are joining us. We're talking about their brand new book, Blood in the Tracks. We'll talk more when they come back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950.
3: The Mary T family of companies serve seniors and people with a wide range of disabilities. We provide home health care, hospice services, and accessible rental housing.
0: AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, Paul Metza and Rick Shevchik are kind enough to join us. Rick, by the way, has written multiple books. I want to mention these. Everyone's heard about The Bird. Also, The Green Monster, Amen Corner, From Fields to Fairways, and Frozen Tundra. All of them are available, correct? Just go to
2: Amazon and... uh Order early and often. They'll order early
0: for all for all your what, what's, what's all, oh, you Halloween
2: gift-giving needs. Yes.
0: Uh, <laughs> you get them right now. Uh, and we should mention, both of you are at the Electric feed is tomorrow, correct? Yeah, at 3
1: o'clock tomorrow. We're going to do a uh, Q&A. Uh, we have a... Um, Good friend of ours uh, who's going to kind of lead the discussion. And then what's special tomorrow, we're going to do a little music performance as part of it with my longtime harmonica player, Sunny Earl. And we're going to be having the great, great Greg Inhofer play keyboards and sing. He actually appeared on Blood on the Tracks. So it's going to be kind of a just really fun afternoon at uh, the greatest music store in america
0: absolutely and and is is that a ticketed thing or no uh, you
1: just come on down
0: 3 p.m at the electric feed is tomorrow that's the place to be it's going to be raining tomorrow so you want to go do that and then tomorrow night you're in
1: stillwater playing a gig correct i'm playing tomorrow night with sunny earl i haven't been at the tilted tiki in a few years so we're looking to uh, rock that corner over in st in the stillwater area yes seven o'clock
0: the mighty stillwater metroplex okay so we got to get back to to this so Dylan is it's it's not clicking in New York recording this album. He comes back to Minnesota gets get gets the musicians here it clicks fairly quickly they get the rest of the songs cut. they put the album out huge hit huge success. The Minneapolis musicians were not. Featured on the and as you said, laziness sounds like a big part of it. They just they had already printed the album covers. They didn't want to go back and add the musicians. Although they could have easily done that on subsequent right. printings of the album, they just didn't. I, I am a little stunned that Bob Dylan didn't at some point he, he'd say, "Okay, well these guys didn't play on these, <laughs> these songs, or why are these guys included?" But he, you know, they just he didn't seem to care.
2: Well. Uh, it's really hard to get into inside Bob's mind on things like this, but Greg Enhoffer has an alternative theory, which may well be right. It could have just been a business decision on the part of Columbia Records, yeah. and maybe Dylan did at one point say, uh, you know, update these credits, and uh, Columbia, for whatever reason, has has chosen not to, because if you still buy the single CD, you're going to see exactly the same thing that was on the very first one that was issued back in 1975. The same musicians, many of whom are not actually on the record, Mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, Minnesota guys are not. They're only credited on that six-CD box set that came out in 2018. Uh, Inhofer thinks that um, because they were never asked to sign releases after the uh, session, that Columbia was a little worried about getting sued for uh, possibly a, um, uh, back royalties or something like that. Uh, two of them actually made the chord suggestions that Dylan ended up using on on two separate songs. And very technically, bo- both Chris Weber and Greg Inhofer could have said, now wait a second, I, de- I deserve a writing credit because I contributed to that mm-hmm. song and uh, and so inhofer's uh, theory is that uh, columbia just wanted to avoid any possibility of them coming back and saying uh, you know we're on the album you said we're on the album we need more money you know mm-hmm. you, you should be paying us more than you've paid us up to this point so possibly that's why their names have never appeared
0: and i got to imagine in knowing the musicians paul that the that this i mean did it burn them did i mean obviously i imagine it had to have burned them but i mean it it just how does that settle when you all of a sudden you're on one of the greatest albums of all time? You're there. You want to, you know, hey, son, here, look, here I am, listed here, and they can't do that, and so it becomes one of those sure thing, dad. You know, that right. sort of the sort of thing. I imagine for the musicians themselves, there was a level of frustration there that that I mean, I'm surprised didn't become much more. As you said, you can you can make a much bigger stink out of this than they did.
1: Well, I, you know, I think it was different for each uh, musician. Uh, I think for the most part they all felt like they were a part of, part of history, uh, playing with one of the uh, greatest songwriters of the last hundred years who happened to be a fellow Minnesotan, which is a big part of our, uh, our book about the shared DNA, which is why Rick came up with the great title of Blood in the, the Tracks. But when they finally got their credit when More Blood, More Tracks came out in 2018, I know how how great they felt. Now – Odegaard talks about, and he, we mentioned in the book how he will be in an elevator somewhere or in a small cafe, and and uh, tangled up in blue comes on the radio or the uh, whatever the sound system is, and he'll mention to whoever, oh, by the way, that's me playing guitar, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they think they're just talking to some crazy guy in the elevator, but uh, but. Kevin especially, just he knew at the time, and uh, we we mentioned this in the book, how special that particular song was. They said there was just silence after Mm -hmm. it was done recording, knowing it was going to go somewhere important, and, and it certainly did.
0: And, and uh, tangled up in blue. Yeah, yeah. It, tangled up in blue. Uh, you're a big girl now. Idiot world. Idiot wind. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Idiot <laughs> wind. I I need my glasses. I uh, uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And if you see her, say hello. All those five were recorded in Minneapolis. Basically, the same as number as were recorded in New York. Yeah, I, I guess once again, it is it is one of those things where it, it's. There is a level here of kind of disbelief on this, that, that, you know, this this is such an iconic album, and it's just, and as you said, I mean, it's just, Minneapolis is is almost being dismissed here, uh, and and the musicians, and I, I don't want to necessarily, I'm not going to take, the city's not going to take any grandiose for the musicians that were involved. They were part of this, and Dylan is, of course, you know, very brilliant on all these things, but at the same time, it just, to, to have this out there, and at no point, like, okay, you know what, we just, we need to fix this, guys, you right. know, and... I get the concern about lawsuits and stuff like that, but there's also just a a disconnect here because this is, as you sort of laid out, this album would not be here if not for these musicians in Minneapolis at this studio. Henceforth, it's kind of a big
2: deal.
1: Yeah, (laughs) well, you know, when you think about uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis... Events in our lifetime you 've got the two World series, of course, mm-hmm. but it 's right up there with that, you know mm-hmm. uh, our, on an artistic level um it's uh yeah that's well that 's one of the reasons why we were excited to write uh, to write the book and uh, Kevin Hodegard had written a book called Simple Twist of Fate, which came out in two thousand two, which is a high, book highly recommended, also uh, available on Amazon. But what we wanted to do, and myself especially as a lifelong musician, tell the story, what these guys did before, what they did during the sessions, and then what they did afterwards. Because it wasn't, in the case of uh, Hoffer and Odegaard, it wasn't all roses, you Mm know. Uh, The other guys were more even keel, kept working. But but both those guys in particular had some real tough times, and they were very – honest about it. In fact, uh, when I was talking to Odegaard at some point, he was talking about uh, Rick because I had all the interviews, about 200 and some pages of transcribed interviews that I had done with all of the guys. And then Rick went back and and re-interviewed them, uh, which we kind of worked a little bit together on. But uh, Odegaard said uh, that Shevchuk was one of the greatest therapists he's ever had
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well elaborate on that a little bit what what about that interview do you think was you know in in I mean maybe a little tongue-in-cheek but the therapeutic forum on that and that case
2: well as with all of them um, I I really wanted a life story I, I wanted to know how they got into music why um, you know what the, <laughs> what their adventures in the business were and but Really, uh, not knowing where any of this was going to lead, because I, I didn't know their stories, and and as Paul said, in in, mm. in a majority of the cases, they led uh, you know fairly normal for a working musician, you know oh, fairly yeah. fairly normal lives. But as I uh, continued to uh, kind of probe a little bit with uh, with Kevin, uh, he just started taking me into some places in his life that. Uh, um, uh, were great disappointments to him. Things that he had uh, wanted to do with his life that didn't work out. Um, he uh, he had a failed marriage. He he went through uh, a drug and alcohol treatment, um, but kept fighting every step of the way to pull his life together, to pull his career back together. Uh, he's done some amazing things in his life,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and and for him to have ever gotten to the point where he felt disappointed. In mm-hmm. in in the way his life was was uh, um, working out, it's 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 really very sad. You uh, y- you feel for all these guys, but you want them to feel like their lives meant something. And there's some times for Kevin where he really kind of wondered if it if it had. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who didn't even really expect to play he he brought the the other musicians together but uh and he brought his guitar to the sessions but he was he was really only there because he worked with david zimmerman and uh david really wasn't thinking about having him play on the session it wasn't until the second night um he walks in and he sees there's an extra chair set up one for him and then then they start in on tangled up in blue and Tangle Up in Blue really wasn't going anywhere that it hadn't gone in New York until Kevin suggested to Dylan that uh, you ought to raise it up a full step. Mm-hmm. From, from the key of G to D. the key of A. Mm-hmm. And uh, to give
1: a little more tension.
2: <laughs> you know, Bob asked him after a quick w- run through doing it the original way what he thought of it, and Kevin said, well, it's, it's passable. And Right away, he thought, I just told Bob Dylan I didn't think that much of <laughs> one of his songs. I'm going to be kicked out of the session as of right now. And Dylan was quiet for a minute and he said, um, what does it need? And he said, raise, raise the key because that gets you more into a rock and roll key as opposed to a folk – or country kind of a key, it will give the song a little more intensity
0: and by the way, what you 're describing is the re- value of studio musicians. they can tell you what keys work with what types of music, right. and they can the, the fact that he was able to say this is not right this's got to be a different key mm-hmm. yeah that that's that's the value
1: and and brave enough to tell Dylan
0: that yeah. and, and
2: so they they raise it a key um went through uh, probably just a couple of bars to see if Dylan liked it, and he said, yeah, I think this will work. And then, bang, one take, they had one of the classic rock and roll songs of all time. And Kevin Odegaard is very much... a, not just a, a contributor, but almost an instigator in in how that song turned out.
1: Inhofer suggested to David that uh, Kevin kind of helped put this all together, why don't you consider using him? And so I think Inhofer deserves a lot of credit for that move. He also tells a great story that we have in the book. Bob wrote down the uh, the chords on a garbage bag mm-hmm. and just kind of ripped the garbage bag and threw it at Greg and said – here you go. This, I mean, that's you know, Dylan's not writing out the you know the notes on a treble clef or anything, and uh, I believe Kevin Odegaard has that those chords with the title uh, ta- "Tangle." I don't mean it says "Tangle Up in Blue." Uh, now that uh, garbage bag is now framed on oh. his wall. Oh, I can see that one showing <laughs> up on <at> antique roadshow <laughs> at some point, and they're like, yeah. "What? <laughs> You've got what? Oh my gosh!" Um, Kevin was, gave his guitar, his 1969 Martin D-28. He donated it to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. Oh,
0: that's nice. Yeah. Uh, and when, uh, I offered
1: him 300 bucks for it, but it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't take it. Uh, I'll give him $325. dollars
0: <laughs> 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 no, i got I to grease the wheels there. Uh, obviously, the inclusion. Well, I mean, the one thing I, I like about Dylan fans is Dylan fans know this stuff. And that, as much as they're not included on that album, I imagine many of them for many years knew who these musicians were, knew some of the names at least. Talk about being included on the, the six-disc uh, set, the fact that they they finally got the, the, the credit they deserve.
1: Well, and it was – what's interesting about that, uh, uh, their, their five songs, they took off a lot of the reverb that Paul Martinson, who did a great job – uh, i 'm getting that all to two track um, so it 's really if you would listen to more blood more tracks. I was listening to it uh, on the way down from Duluth today it 's a little brighter, a little clearer, and the instruments are a little easier to pick out uh, so it 's highly recommend it it 's I think I got it for like eighty five bucks on uh, on Amazon, but there, isn't there a two-record set with those versions?
2: Yeah, as a, I don't think you have to spring for all six uh, CDs, but mm-hmm. it also comes with a lovely book with many photos if, yeah. you want, if you want to go the deluxe route.
0: And as a matter of fact, I mean, you're talking one of the iconic albums, you're talking about that comeback, that, that, that refinding of himself, mm-hmm. uh, going through his personal troubles that you and I talked about before Paul and on. Uh, you're talking about that in the finding of himself there. You know, a collector's book, I mean, I'll recommend that because generally I find when you find those iconic albums where the personal life merges with the classic of it, the, the, get the big one because that's you're going to get all the good stuff in there. And that's where you, if you're a fan, that's where you're going to find it all. You know, it's
1: funny, Matt, when I heard the record when it came out in 75, and I had been listening to Dylan since I was a kid, 1967, 68, and... Uh, I didn't like it. Mm. I stopped listening to Dylan for two years because it didn't have that wild mercury sound of highway 61 or blonde on blonde. Of course I was smoking more pot than Bob Marley yeah, at the time. And so when I finally came <laughs> to my senses, I listened to it when man, it was, I, I referred to it as the mild mercury sound. It still had that magic, but wasn't quite as, you know, if you want to say ram or Ramshackle, some of those mid sixties records were, but, uh, Since we started working on the book and what was fun, you know a little bit, man. I was living in Duluth that first year, Mm -hmm. living at the first floor of Bob Dylan's childhood home while I was working on it. And so it had an extra kind of magic. Rick was one of the first guys that visited me up there. And uh, it was a really fun collaboration. But to actually be there in the house where this young man started his life was mind-blowing
0: when you go back to this album one of the things I find is interesting is you talk about your youth you listen to it for the first time I didn't like this what we're talking about is the maturity of a of a classic yeah. the maturity of a classic did it take you a few years for you to mature to realize holy crap I missed a whole bunch here
1: you know and it's not just that because uh, after I finally got the I got it about six weeks ago I got the uh, sixth cd set so I'm, you're listening to several versions of the New York sessions and reckon and I We've got not we like the New York sessions too, and yeah. I think the combination makes for such a powerful record. But man, I was just uh, listening to "You're a Big Girl Now" and really digging into it. It's one of the saddest damn songs I've ever heard, man.
0: And then going back to what Rick was talking about earlier, yeah. yeah.
2: And
1: then and then and then try to follow "Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts," and if that won't spin your head around like "Linda Blair and the Exorcist," I uh-huh. I don't know what will. But yeah, it's it, and that's kind of the beauty of Dylan. There's like these veils of meaning that you got to get through, and then you go, "Oh, I missed that." Oh, I get this, and uh, of course, it's all for. Your, for everybody's own interpretation but th- it's a very deep and beautiful record
0: and I should mention one thing that we did not talk about these these five songs recorded in Minneapolis on two days yeah. th- on December 27th yeah. and December 30th so right around that in between Christmas and New Year's recorded that quickly they just clicked
2: and not only that it was a revolving cast of characters even within those two days because peter Ostrushko didn't even show up until they recorded the last song on the second day Um, it was kind of a last minute call over uh and uh, billy peterson had to leave the session both sessions and missed the second songs that were recorded
1: that's a great story working working musician story because he was doing uh the Natural Life, his kind of jazz rock fusion band, played upstairs at the Longhorn. I don't know if you you remember that. If you're,
0: I old do enough. remember. I do remember the Longhorn. And
1: so he was playing there on uh, on on the weekends, and but Bob Rockwell, who was the leader of the band, uh, Billy said, "Well, I'm doing these sessions with Bob." Billy says, "I don't care who you're playing with." This is your gig, and you have to be here at 9 o'clock. So, and he told Bob that, Bob said, hey, I get it. You know? That's
2: right. Yeah. No hard feelings, Bob said. Uh, maybe I'll come down and catch your band. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he? No. No. Okay. <laughs> it
0: would have been great. Uh, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, uh, Paul Metza and Rick Shefchik. Uh Once again, this is available everywhere. Uh, you guys are going to be at Electric Fetus tomorrow at three PM for a Q and A. You're playing over in Stillwater once again. What's Still
1: Tiki with Sunny Earl at seven PM Saturday night?
0: find and you can find all of Rick's books as well on Amazon. You can find them there, including Blood in the Tracks. So now we have about seven minutes. Let's talk about Northern Minnesota, man. Because all right, how how great is Duluth now?
1: Let Let's go back to Rick and I in Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. Uh, Rick wrote for the Duluth News Tribune. Yeah. And when Cats and the Stars, when I had moved down to Minneapolis in 78, I was talking to the band to come down, put the band back together in about 1980. And this is back when we, we started out as a bluegrass country blues, uh, original music, ragtime band, acoustic. Then we started playing some country rock. We added some electric instruments. And then in 1980, we put on tuxedos and started doing three-part harmony, uh, 30s and 40s swing music. We played at Grandma's in Duluth, and we got one of our first stellar reviews By Mr. Rick Shevchen. Really? That's the
2: first time I laid eyes on Paul, and uh, little did I know that uh, he was going to become an important part of my life years later. (laughs) At the time now, let's see, in 1980, I was, uh, I think, let's see, I was born in 52, so I would have been, what, 28 years old at that point? Um, Anyway, I I wanted to be like Paul. I wanted to get out of town. I'd, I'd been in Duluth most of my life. I'd gone away to college, but come back, and... In 1980, Duluth was kind of a depressed... town, <laughs> trying to find a new direction. It, it,
0: well, it was. I remember my dad... Now, we had a, a sauna at our place out in Virginia, just north on Sand Lake up there. We had a sauna there, and I remember my dad taking me down to Duluth. I'm like, sauna? 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 You know, a sauna would be great. Dad's like, not those saunas, son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The,
1: the family <laughs> sauna.
0: It's a different kind of sauna. I had a friend up there
1: <laughs> who shall remain homeless that uh, his dad used to pick him up uh, after hockey practice in junior high, and he'd run, you know, of course, in the wintertime. He goes, He goes, I'll be right out. And he'd, and he'd park the car and leave it running in front of the family salon, and come back out 20 minutes later with a big smile on his face.
3: Oh,
0: <laughs> it, you know, it, it cleanses the pores. <laughs> but you're right. In the 80s, and I remember we go down, like I said, Superior Street used to be half empty. Yeah, I mean, at least half empty. And there was nothing on the west side. There oh, And there, no. was
1: a, there was Canal Park was... was uh, beat up and burnt down. It was, I, I mean, there was a couple of giants, but what we like, what was great about this book, Matt, was, uh, Rick was, uh, born in Duluth, graduated from Duluth East in 1970. I was, uh, born in Virginia, Minnesota, 22 miles East of Hiving, barely graduated in 1974. And, but we both uh-huh. had that, not only a lifelong love and knowledge of Bob Dylan, but I think geographically we had the karmic circle complete. And, uh, and we had gotten to know each other over the years, but we became a lot closer working on this book. And uh, part of it was our northeastern Minnesota connection. Well, who suggested the book?
0: I mean, was it which, which oh. one? Was, was it was, it, that it was, was Paul. Your, it was Paul. There's a
1: guy named Michael Croy who's a literary agent. And uh, I had had a bunch of interviews by about 2018. And he, and I told him about it. We went out to Dusty's in northeast Minneapolis, had a burger and a beer. He goes, that's a great idea. So one thing led to another. I don't know exactly what the timeline was, but he said, we should probably get a co-author. And I said, I know just the guy, Rick mm-hmm. Shepchick.
0: Congratulations on the book. Gosh, I could. we should, we should have done two hours, man. Yeah. <laughs> you could have been late for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alphabet Jazz. I kind of mentioned this. Alphabet Jazz, your other book, because
1: you've been busy. Uh, That one's still selling well, correct? That is, yes, selling well. That will be at the fetus. And then the uh, the University of Minnesota Press uh, reprinted in in softcover my autobiography that I wrote in 2011 called Blue Guitar Highway that also will be at the fetus. I'm proud of that book. Kirkus Review said, in their review of that book, said, Metza is as likable a narrator as ever Grace stool.
0: You cannot be a great songsman like yourself
1: <laughs> and not know how to
0: tell a story. You know, you, you just, or Grace
1: of worst. Well, you know, well
0: it's, <laughs> that comes with the territory for sure. And also we should mention you have a little radio show right here.
1: I do, and uh, it will be uh, 6 o'clock. You know, we're almost going on 10 years, nine and a half years, the wallopower Power radio hour. And so it's, uh, you know, COVID kind of shut us down. So I recorded it out of the house, but so it's good to be back in the studio. And of course, we got a shout out to Brett Johnson and Patrick Lilia, who make you sound great every day.
0: I have no idea how they do it, man. That is some that is some that is some witchcraft, witchcraft and voodoo going on there. So uh, get the book. As you can tell, this is it's a good story. And you can get the book. You'll go get the album. If you get the book, you're going to go get the album. Go catch these guys at the Electric Feetus tomorrow 3 p.m. Once again, a Q&A and a performance going on there as well. Paul Metza and Rick Shefchick. Uh Guys, thank you so much for coming on by. We're going to take one last little break here. Come on back. I'm playing Tangled Up in Blue as we go out today. Beautiful. And there we go. We'll do that. Uh, it is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, The Progressive Voice of Minnesota. It's Matt McNeil Show. So once again, catch these guys over at the feed tomorrow, 3 p.m. That's a Q&A and that's a performance. Tilted Tiki in, uh, in Stillwater. Thank you. The, the, that's where they're, uh, Paul's going to be performing uh, coming up tomorrow night. What time does that start at, by the way? 7 o'clock with Sonny Earl. 7 o'clock, Sonny Earl. And then just any time you guys, if you get the chance to catch Paul...
1: Go catch Paul.
0: He's he's great. He's great at Are you still playing that weekly game? Every up in Wednesday night
1: at uh, the t- at uh, Blackwater Lounge, mm-hmm. right in downtown Duluth, uh, between the North Shore and the old Hotel Duluth, from six to eight. No cover. And if you're a health care worker, you get 20% off. That was my idea because it's nice. so close to all the uh, hospitals and clinics and yeah. health care workers work their butts off. And
2: it's that's- the coolest cocktail lounge in Duluth and maybe in Minnesota. It is really great. Well,
1: the,
0: the restaurants up there are so good right yeah. now. Uh, Wednesday night, that's that, that gig up there, right? Yep, All right. 6 to 8. I'm going to be up there a lot more because my daughter's up at UMD, man. Right. And by the way, good football team. I Actually, I enjoyed a football game in Minnesota. How does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen too often. Uh, taking us out today, Tangled Up in Blue. That's a song from a guy named Bob Dylan. Uh, this will take us out. You have a wonderful weekend. Native Roots Radio, I'm Awake. That comes up next. We will be back on a Monday. <laughs> Until then, see ya.
3: Early one morning, the sun was shining. That night for the green it was best. And she turned around to look at me as I was walking away. I heard her say, Oh, Job in the great Northwoods, working as a cook for a spill. But I never did like it all that much, and one day the axe just fell. So I drifted down to New Orleans, or well, lucky with a bee employed. Working for a while on a fishing boat right outside of Delacroix.